Welcome to the Business of Property podcast. I'm Stuart. I'm Simon. And I'm Imran. And we're all property people running our own businesses. And this podcast is just us chatting, as we often do, about anything and everything property. And as those eagle-eared listeners will know, we've, we've added a third party, which is Imran Lock-On to the show. Welcome, Imran. Thanks so much for having me here. No, it's a pleasure to, to join you. So it's a trio today. It's a trio of us, which immediately reminds me of the Three Musketeers, because my youngest four-year-old was talking about going to see, uh, I think it's Dog Tanyon today. Yeah. So um, I've managed to get out of that today. But uh, yeah, so we are a trio today. And we welcome Imran because Imran brings a wealth of experience to the podcast in terms of his background in planning and as well as the developments that he's doing now. But Imran, rather than me ramble through some of your background, could you just share with the listeners a brief bio about yourself and what you're currently doing today? Yeah, of course. And honestly, guys, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's, it's an absolute pleasure um, to meet you. We'll do it virtually for the podcast. Um, so brief background about me. So uh, I guess... My life didn't start in property, so I worked in, in corporate life in my earlier years. But a, a, a wee nipper of 21, um, I got involved in a local authority down in Oxfordshire, and I became a councillor for an area in Oxfordshire. And I started sitting in planning committees at a very young age, so seeing the planning process and voting through originally what I would say are sort of small extensions through to small developments, through to then actually planning out where we'd build the next 100,000 homes across the district. And it's a really exciting, exciting process. It's really insightful seeing it from the inside out rather than the outside in. Um, but I did that while working in corporate life and, and working hard and earning a living. Um, but then, of course, 2008 came along and the world changed and I got made redundant. So being that I spent time sitting in these committees, I thought, well, surely there's a, another option. There's something else that you can do in the world. Um, and I had a few people around me that were, were in property already for quite a while. So I reached out to them and said, you know, I need to do something different in my life. I don't want to apply for another job. So they, they helped give me some support. And I went into the world of sort of property through sourcing, then sort of buy to HMOs. And more recently, over the last sort of, you know, four or five years, you know, mainly around the sort of conversion space and, and new build development spaces where I've been smoking and seeing my energy. Conversions is actually something I really enjoy. But that insightful planning bit um, is really useful. You know, I spent over a decade in a local authority and a real pleasure, real pleasure. Challenging at times, don't get me wrong, challenging at times and hard, as you can imagine, with any sort of government body. But lots of lots of unique sharing and learning from that experience. Thank you very much. And I think I mentioned this when, when we had a chat on your podcast, but it, it almost feels like you've become the poacher that was before the, the gamekeeper. Keeper. So you, you don't it the other way around in terms of being, the, uh, being on the committees. The one thing I, I just wanted to ask you before we start thinking more around sort of your planning experience and how that's informed what you do was just, you said you started out in property sourcing. How, how did that work? So I'm just thinking about people that are new to investing how did that happen for you? How did you j jump straight into the, the sort of property sourcing element? Yeah, well, well, I think there are two two things to it. I mean, when you're when you're sort of you know, we bought our house. I think when when this first happened, we bought our house, been on a ladder for a few years at that point, had a mortgage to pay every month, and I had to do something that was going to generate income relatively quickly because you know, being that I had no job and you know, being the main earner, money had to come in. So I did get um, some coaching and mentoring to help start a business and actually joint ventured on a, a property sourcing company in my first venture from someone that had been in the industry for a number of years. So that was great to get some learning on site while trying to develop a business. 
And the great thing, and, and, and I think back to sort of that market to where we are today, in that market, there were deals actually everywhere because people were having to get rid of assets, they're having to sell. It's actually a really lucrative time, in my opinion, that time to buy property. So for me, jumping in, you know, there's a lot of learning. I had to do a lot of learning early on the process, a lot of manual driving up and down the country. You know, being honest, the, the miles I wrapped up in the car were pretty shocking um, up and down the country because I was viewing properties in, in multiple areas. I wasn't just focusing in Oxfordshire because the challenge with Oxfordshire, if you're trying to produce and get to know clients and most clients back then were still probably like today focusing on a cash flow play wanting to generate income oxfordshire just wasn't really giving the level of yields and returns that you wanted so i was going to sort of the midlands um in parts of derbyshire i was sort of sourcing deals there and then sourcing deals sort of in in certain parts of the south that would um be for a sort of maybe a bit of yield but also some capital appreciation so deals like hmos buy collects down in kent even did some small flips and purchases down in Wales. So I've traveled all over parts of the UK um, and even a bit further north than that. But yeah, the beginning of the journey was, um, it was tough because yes, there was some social media and technology around, but it very much was build the relationship with the agents, get relationships with the investors, attend a lot of property meetup groups because that was a great way of meeting potential clients that were looking to get into the game. But we did, what I did try and do is niche down to for me, the ideal target investor was someone that was starting out. So the first sourcing business was trying to be more of an end-to-end development business. So it would actually source property for you, manage the refurb for you, and then hand it over to a lettings team. So because some people don't have the time to go find their own deals. So we try to focus on a certain target demographic. And I think that focus, if I was talking to anyone today that was starting out in business, get really clear about your ideal client first. You know, get absolutely clear about that first, about what you're looking for. Because then if you're clear about the, the offering, the service, you're finding the right type of people to come to your business, then it makes your life a lot easier when going out to find those deals for those clients. It, it was quite more of a bespoke service rather than just, hey, I've got 20 deals. Who wants what? It was very much sort of sourced order was the first business that we did in 2008. And, and I think that worked quite well. Is that what explains the, the wide geographic spread? Did, did you find the clients and the clients sort of dictate where they wanted to invest? Um, they, I'll be honest with you, some of them didn't know where they wanted to invest. Some of them thought that they wanted to invest in their, in their locality. Um, but when you get to know the client and ask them questions around, okay, so what's important to you in the short, medium, long term? I remember Stuart, when you came on, on, on our podcast, you know, it is about that sort of what's a long-term plan. And, and as you start to sort of unpick that long-term plan for some of them, if they were a client from London, then buying in London wasn't the right plan for them. Unless they maybe were looking to buy, refurb, and then maybe sell to grow that part. Maybe that's better to do in the certain parts of the South. But yeah, it very much was about finding out what they were looking for and then going to locations where I knew that there was a delivery team. So I had to partner with the right people. And don't get me wrong, there are lots of learnings and mistakes along the way with build teams and, and all of that. But partnering with the right people that could then help deliver the, 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 the part of the service. We'll go find it, but then we need teams to deliver the refurb and the build but in areas where I think there was enough stock in demand and enough rental demand in particular, um, if looking to rent out, say, HMOs or, or buy-to-lets. It tend to, the initial focus was more around the buy-to-let sourcing and the, and the flip sourcing. That tended to be quite a strong model back then, but then HMOs slowly crept into, into play. How did you go about identifying those areas that, that you thought had the, the demand and, and were suitable? Uh, a lot of due diligence, a lot of a lot of traveling up and down the country. So um, th- I think there were a few key things for me. It was about 
the ratio for from sort of rental to asset purchase value. So in terms of what would the yields be in those areas? Yield is an okay checkpoint, in my opinion. But for me, it's actually what physical cash flow am I going to generate on that property? That's what I'm really interested in. Yield is pure that checkpoint. The cash flow is what my main interest is. So it's looking at that the level of stock in the marketplace and the type of average purchase prices that we're looking to achieve, what sort of discounts I think I can try and get against those purchase values, and then looking separately at the rental demand uh, alongside that. Of course, at the time, it's looking about what potential regeneration is there, if there is any regeneration. But of course, around that time, it was not so much in those marketplaces. But were the yields good? Was the cash flow good? Did they stack up? Is my rental market good? Do I have enough good lettings partners in those areas with the right tenant demographic that would work. I mean, we were somewhere we were housing people with well incomes or others where we're housing people with low or little income. So we would always say to the client, you know, there's risk rewards. So we might be able to get some guaranteed rental schemes, so possibly three to five year schemes. We might have a tenant that will be a long term tenant, but they are going to be receiving benefits. So yes, you're housing them, which is amazing. We're supporting them. And again, thinking about my local government hat, that was almost like a want in the drive as well, because, you know, sitting in local authority with sort of looking at housing waiting list going, we've got so many people waiting for housing and there's no stock, you know, helping investors understand that actually we can help these people. So there's a bit of giving back too. But risk reward, because not every investor was comfortable going down that strategy. But certainly for me, looking at those sort of three or four key points initially, and then a lot of driving to site. And one thing that's probably more important than any of that is the team. You know, if I don't, if it's just me at the end of the day, if I don't have the right team on the ground to be able to deliver it, it's all well and good saying, hey, I'll go and find you a property. But if I can't get your £15,000 refurb done for you, you know, on time and then let it out, that, that's going to cause the, the deals to break. So that's a great point then. So if, if you chose some of the property areas based on the team, how did you go about finding your teams in, in those geographic areas? Mm, that's, a good, that's a good question. Um, uh, again, a lot of uh, a lot of networking and a lot of trying to get recommendations of people that were coming through the industry. So the one great thing I think about property is that lots of people, it, property is very much a relationship business. I, I totally believe it is a relationship business. And, you know, it, it is quite easy to meet the right people. It's also easy to meet the wrong people that you think are the right people. So I would say a lot of due diligence on speaking to if I was trying to get lettings agents, for example, speaking to the right lettings firms in the area, but actually speaking to their clients as well, understanding what they're like, seeing the properties that they manage, you know, actually physically going up to them saying, can I get access to some of the properties that you manage? I want to see what the process is like. I want to understand how often you check the property, your check-in, check-out process. I need to know everything. Because at the end of the day, it would be me or the team on my side that will be promoting a service to a client. And they would be promote, indirectly promoting the letting service. So it's almost like I need to become an extension of that lettings business. I become an extension of that building firm, even though it's not my company, let's say. Um, I am promoting their services and their offerings. So I need to feel 100% confident in them. So it's like, um, it's almost like property speed dating, I guess, with different people and trying to make sure they're the right thing. I mean, do you make mistakes along the way? I remember with one, one build team, they weren't great. So they were very short in the relationship. But I mean, a great guy after that. And what was interesting was any time I had to go up to the Midlands, I would only ever go up to go to the Midlands at one point if there was a problem. And he knew that. He knew that. So he would always make an effort to meet me, talk through things, any delays on refurbs. And being fair, they weren't massive delays, but just 
if I've set an expectation out on a project and what I want to see go through, one would hope it goes through within that time frame. But of course, we all know, you guys know more than anyone, that um, property never quite works that way. There's there's so much really good advice there. And, and there's a few things that I was just thinking about. The first was the, the teams being an extension of your business. And that's exactly how I see it. And I, I don't think everyone does do that, but I do. So as soon as I have a build team, as far as I'm concerned, we are partners. We are colleagues. We don't necessarily go out for candlelit dinners together, but I see us as people that work together. But the, the other thing about your the letting agents, and I think you made some really good points. I remember the, one of the things I did was I phoned those letting agents as, as a potential tenant just to see how long it took them to pick up the phone, what their service was like. And the, the, the interesting thing is, like you said, you could you could do all of that and still it might not work out. And, you know, there's a phrase that I'll butcher, which is, you know, show me someone that's never failed and I'll show you someone that's never attempted anything, something like that. And I think that is the thing. We, we've just got to do some as much due diligence as we feel is necessary, but it still might not work out. But some some great points there. Yeah. And like you said, I love, I love what you just said about actually phoning up and pretending to be a tenant. I think that's a great bit of advice to give any investor listening in because you know, at the end of the day, they're representing your business. The tenants is what can, the tenants are the people that are producing you rental income and a return. And if if the gate if the first gate is the letting agency for the tenant and they can't get through to the gate, then how are they going to start coming into your property? You know, what's going to happen there? So I think that's a great bit of advice. I love that. Absolutely love that. I didn't do that back in the early days, so I wish I'd met you earlier. <laughs> <laughs> and just the other thing is, is obviously it's no accident that this, this podcast is called Business of Property because we, we try and reframe our, our thinking and our modus operandi into running a business. And something I think you spelled out quite clearly that not everyone can do and maybe I couldn't have done in my first couple of years is that you identified your, your problem to solve and your customer to serve. And that's something I'll go around the houses about. But in terms of you know finding LHA tenants, uh, you know housing associate tenants, that thing, so you're very clear on on the customers, your end customer, as well as your clients in terms of the investors. And I think that's a really important thing. I just wanted to underscore for people listening is that's a really important element of the business to to have some clarity on, and, and not all of us will. Yeah. The next thing I was just going to think about this, we talked about the property sourcing and there's so much more, I'm sure both Simon and I would love to ask you about that, but in, we've, we've got limited time. But is, at what stage did you make the step forward? Did you bridge from property sourcing to replace the income that you'd lost from the from the crash into developing your business or your property development business as it is now? It's quite interesting to understand that that bit of the journey. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think that that's the biggest thing. You know, I remember back to, again, when I first lost my job, I think it was the first one or two weeks sitting at home, probably playing PlayStation or something back then and um, and dwelling on what I was going to do in my life. And I thought, well, dust myself off and do something about it. But yeah, you're absolutely right. So when you went through property sourcing, that was sort of to try and get the revenue and income coming in. And I realized quite early on, actually, it wasn't that hard to, yes, it was hard work, but it wasn't that hard to get to a point where as long as I had a number of deals going through on a monthly basis because there's always going to be some deals that are either going to be delayed because of conveyancing or will fall out of bed because something's come up on the survey and we have to walk away from the deal. So as long as there was a momentum of deals going through, there's enough revenue coming to the business, which was great, um, and I could start going on to do other things. So I'd start also sort of at a time where I could start flipping properties as well to grow the capital pot, so buy, refurb, and again, sell. So I started doing more flips along the journey as well. So that capital pot then allowed me to then go off and do 
sort of buy to lets or joint venture um, deals, like, you know, conversions and that sort of thing. I think conversion is quite early on the process. And I think I sort of, again, that planning process and understanding it, you know, and understanding sort of what can be done. But I really loved sort of the refurbishment process. I, it sounds crazy because some people go just buy a property and just rent it out. But I loved actually, whilst I wasn't getting my hands dirty, I love the fact that the team were, and I think you made a great point there as well, the extension of your team, they are your partners in the build because without them, you can't de- develop it and hopefully you can do more deals with them. But yeah, then moved off into space doing flips, then sort of the Vitalet and HMO space. And that helped me generate other income streams, which was perfect you know, alongside the sourcing. You know, and it started to be quite interesting. You start to see sort of multiple streams of income from that process, which is great. And we all talk about multiple streams of income, but then when you start to see it in reality happening, you start to get more excited about the process, you know. Um, but flips has always been, for me, actually, I quite liked flipping because, yes, it was lumpy bumpy in the sense of you're only making pots of money every six to eight months, maybe 12 months, depending on the, the length of the project, but they're quite sizable chunks of money. So they're quite good. I think one of the, the, the best flips I remember doing was it was a deal. This was a deal down in Kent. I think the purchase price from memory was around £80,000 for this sort of uh, house. I think it was a small detached house. And someone was trying to buy it for more money. Uh, there was an issue with the roof. Um, so it needed quite a bit of work. Managed to get in, made an offer. But rather than, uh, and I brought some other funds in and other investing, rather than actually doing the work, sort of bought it, flipped it auction straight away and made profit, which was great. So it was a sort of quick win within three months. So again, that sort of moved me into the auction space as well. It's sort of buying, doing due diligence, again, training. I got training along the way, but, you know, buying properties at auction, doing them up, selling them on. You know, I used to love being sat in London auction houses and seeing all these investors, you know, far more wealthy and successful, but understanding what they were going through and actually talking and collaborating with them, understanding their journeys and learning from those that have been maybe in the industry five, 10 years longer than I had been at that point. Yeah. So that's how the sort of journey developed on, really. You talked about doing conversions. What what do you convert? <laughs> yeah, so so in terms of conversion, so when, when we went to the conversion space, um, it really started from just taking, and again, you know, I think about to what I saw in planning committees, you know, thinking about what I saw in planning committees, which were a bigger scale being fair back then. So you'd have a developer come in, you know, on the other side of the table, trying to get planning. And I always, I remember back in my early days, I thought, well, these guys are good, but they're the big bad wolf, right? Because they're on that side of the table and I'm the one that <laughs> the other committee members voting it through yes or no and um and their architect or their agent was there trying to represent how it's such a good scheme and obviously we're raising questions um but we start to frame it as a small conversion so it might be an existing dwelling where maybe we could get planning or it already has planning to convert it into two units or three units so um then you've got two or three apartments split the titles of those apartments either sell two keep one uh, or refinance them individually because there might be a better GDV valuation on that potentially. So rather than keeping it as one freehold, so doing a bit of title splitting at the same time, um, if that made sense. Did I really understand title splitting back then? Probably not, but I just got on and did it. <laughs> and had a very good solicitor being for, um, who taught me the process. So uh, yeah, so very much it was a smaller angle of it. I mean, if I, if I fast forward to today, I was actually on site yesterday um, over in Norwich. Um, we've got a site over there, which is a building. It's a, a sort of a main church and additional church hall uh, where we've knocked through the building in between that was built in the 90s to connect the two together. And that's been converted into 19 units. So, you know, that's sort of starting off from little beginnings, you know, to something quite big today you know and that's sort of the size that we're doing at the moment we are looking to grow further from that but 
Um, at, the, at the moment, we feel quite comfortable developing that le that level. Would I have said we would have bought a church a few years ago? Probably not, but it's not listed. So we didn't have to worry about listed buildings sent from that point of view. This building did have planning permission, but the previous owner spent about four and a half, five years fighting the local authorities and the communities to get planning. So I feel I felt her pain is what I would say to you in terms of the process that she went through, being that I've seen it from the other side. Did they, did the planning permission that it came with, is that what you've gone forward to to do development wise or have you gone back and tweaked the tweaked the planning at all no i mean so we we actually we actually went forward as as they've gone through um there has been it's, it's one thing to get planning i think this is it's important for any investor looking to go into this space it's one thing to get planning but then you have all the building regulations work to think about next because people often think well once i've got planning permission that's great i've got a rubber stamp i can start building but you've then got to make sure the building control are, ha are happy with what you've got planning for because especially in a conversion, a new build slightly different, but in a conversion, and especially of more historic buildings, you're dealing with complexity. And if for any reason your drawings don't quite line up or the measurements don't quite meet what you see in the building, then there's going to be some iterational changes. So most of it's as as stands. Um, however, there there has been some negotiation work with the Building Control Authority in terms of certain things that they might like us to try and do maybe they can't enforce it because it's not a building regs matter but they'd like us to try and do and so and there might be other areas where we go well can we do this here if possible we'd like to try and do this to adapt the building in a slightly different way so a bit of to and froing there but in terms of the planning process at the moment most of it is is as stands um, from that point of view it seems to work quite quite well but I'm sure there'll be other schemes along the way where there will be some variations that need to go in. Um, I'm actually going to start doing some research on another site which has the potential to go in for a planning variation to increase the number of units that could be developed in that space. And do you feel that the the current sort of government objectives stroke targets in relation to number of houses is supporting those you know, applications for variation or planning is, is it something that you're sort of cognizant of where you're, you're seeing things become a little bit easier obviously there's always going to be um limitations but is that something you're you're witnessing yourself yeah yeah definitely if I, I mean i think back to my time on the local authority you think i only stood down a few years ago so it's not long ago that i stood down from the local authority and and when i remember when i first joined the authority and going to planning conferences um with other councils across the uk and when I told them my friend, one of the Oxfordshire authorities, South Oxfordshire, they were like, oh, one of the tough authorities in the UK, you know, we're known as one of the toughest back then. And I remember some of the planning officers, you know, that I've, I've had some great trainings from over the years, you know, they were tough planning officers, you know, it was very hard to get something through the planning committee or get them through an officer in the first place, without even getting to a public committee for the first to hear it. So the, I think with the government trends that have moved certainly over the last sort of five, six years, there has been a much more willingness for local authorities to embrace building and with planning legislation changes that's that's made things um, dramatically different one of the biggest things and actually a challenge for a local authority certainly after authority had they changed um, planning legislation at government level through what we call the um, NPPF national planning policy framework that sets out basically the framework for the whole of the whole of uh, England and Wales and then obviously councils have to adopt and think about their process to their locality so because they changed the process in terms of what we call the lead time to build units, so we have to have what we call a five-year rolling land supply. 
So they said that every local authority needs to have this five-year rolling land supply. And if you don't, that is trouble for us. So for example, our area fell short of the five-year rolling land supply. And there's two issues around that because the, the rolling land supply relies on the top sort of five or six big developers in the UK to build houses. So if they slow down their build, that impacts what happens. And there's one key bit of terminology they change. It's not what's been granted planning for, it's what's built. And that was a key factor. When they said it's what's been built, that meant that our authority that I was part of couldn't prove that we had a five-year land supply. So all of a sudden, we started getting influx of new build applications in areas that would may not have been allocated sites for development. We would have refused them as a local authority and maybe even in planning committee, I might have looked at the application. And I do, over the years, I've tried to look at both sides of the coin. I've tried to look at the developer's perspective, what they've done, how they've engaged with the community, what points they've taken back to try and come up with the right plan that fits the community. But also look at it from a council. We need to deliver more housing. We need to have the right level of housing because that's the advice that central government are giving us and getting that fine balance. But we were finding any sites that we were refusing go to appeal and what was happening they were winning appeal so i do definitely think that started that was a catalyst that has now started this sort of big government push to continue the housing drive and i do think most local authorities are more open to development i think the issues that i think i find i might be i can't talk for every local authority it's a capacity to look at these applications because do planning departments have enough people employed to actually look at applications fairly in more detail, are they restricted at the moment? I think there is an issue there. So, so maybe developers and applicants are having much more freedom and flexibility to get a bit more of what they want, possibly. Do you think that uh, there, there are, or have you seen examples where you think schemes have gone through that, re- that really shouldn't have? Have I seen schemes that have gone through that really shouldn't have? Yeah, I, I, I guess so. There have been a few where you know, it's, it's hard because on paper, you look at a drawing on paper and on paper, you might think, yeah, this looks amazing. But in reality, when you think about the location, the locality and being that these are in areas that I would know, because of course, if you're in a planning committee, you could have site visits before you come to the main committee hearing. So the we would go site visits. We'd be there with a planning officer talking through the scheme. You'd have hundreds and hundreds of letters from residents both some for most of them against the application the development so um i'd have residents screaming and shouting at me at public meetings you know this is all the things that you have to deal with in that in that environment very it's character building i tell you that is character building so you have to have quite a thick skin at times resilience resilience that's the right word resilience yeah i won't swear resilience is probably the right word and um and, and a, a big glass of wine after a committee meeting <laughs> but but yeah i will i would certainly say there were certain schemes where Maybe not all parts of the application were, were right. And, you know, there are certain sites now you see them developed where I think, you know, these are, these are quite large sites. We might be talking 1,000 homes, 2,000 homes, where I've, I've raised concerns at committee or with planning officers over just simple things like spacing between units, um, size of gardens, issues with overlooking, um, overdevelopment, actually widths of the road. You know, where will the cars park? Because there's no real on-site parking. There's a garage space apparently in front of the garage, but most families have two cars. So there's space for one car. Where's the other car go? Onto the road. And I've seen certain schemes where they've been developed. We've got one where we've got over a thousand homes developed and there's cars just basically half on the path, half on the road. And it's a, it's a, it's a rabbit warren to get through. Now we could have planned that better, you know, and that I think for me, that's what frustrates me because I wish I could have more involvement at the front end of that process, but I'm not a planning officer. 
you know, but if I had more involvement with the front end, it'd be good to sort of try and mitigate those risks early on in the process so that when it does get to a committee hearing or coming through to planning for either approval or refusal, we've dealt with all those issues. And I think that's really important for anyone who's going to the world of development to think about, you know, really build the right relationships with planning officers and, and expect that there might need to be some give and take. You know, you can't, even today's market where things are going through, I think, a bit more, do try and have some give and take because if you, I'd rather build, you build a, a decent development development and be proud of it. Now, be proud of the development, actually give decent homes to people with decent gardens. But of course, some people need to make a certain margin. I get that totally. It's about making a certain margin. So, so some of the bigger developers will pack them and stack them, I guess. You know, you know I don't want to talk ill of the big developers, but hey, that's what they might do. Yeah, I, I live on, on a relatively new development area. And, and yeah, the, the roads around here suffer from pretty much exactly what you described. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, and my thinking, for it was always that the the developers just didn't want to give more space to the roads or to the parking because they would fit fewer houses in and my assumption was that the the planning authority the local authority didn't have the the power to to refuse that and you say that if they get or if people were talking more early on that the proposals might come through differently do you do you think they really would especially from the the bigger developers um, especially now that it seems they, they have for a while and perhaps even more so in the future, can get away with with not providing better roads, more space, et cetera? Mm, I, yeah, I think it, I do think it is harder. I genuinely think it, it is harder. Um, you know, having said that, I think that if if a community can rally round and put a really concise, strong argument together, the challenge with, I think, is basically with, and we're all like this, as humans, we can be emotional. Okay, people don't want things built in their back garden. I totally get that. I understand it. You know, especially when you're dealing with residents. And I remember one scheme where there was a, a scheme for 555 homes. And that's that site. When I first looked at that site with the developer and, and with the local authority, they wanted to build in excess of a thousand homes. We got them down to 555, but we're looking at a thousand homes. You know, and and that was too many for that site. So I think there is still the capacity to do that but i think it's got to be a really concise argument that focuses around planning matters the problem is when we just go in with emotion emotion isn't a planning reason for refusal at a big scheme and they can't redesign and i often heard this in planning committees which really bugged me that you know in a committee meeting um you have a, a maybe a, a member saying another member saying well we're not in a position where we can redesign this well we could have if better conversations happened early on and if the applicant had withdrawn the application and gone back, maybe that would work. Um, but of course, they spent all this money to get to this point. They're not going to want to go away. And I see it on the other side and I wouldn't want to go away. But I think there is the chance to do it. I think it is just more, it's catching opportunity really early on though. And really being clear about, look, the difference here is planning will potentially come. This is the difference. Whereas before it was planning may not come because we might be able to get it refused. I would say today, you need to prepare for the worst situation that planning will happen. You know, that's how I would look at it. Planning is going to happen. So how do we get the best result that gives the community a decent development, gives people that are going to move into the area a decent residential living experience and, and for the existing residents to enjoy it too? Because the big developers in particular, they do make quite sizable contributions to, and, and I suppose what sometimes that residents don't understand, they do have to make a sizable contribution um, which is under Section 106 agreements um, and under uh, SIL contributions. So they make those those contributions towards facilities. Sometimes they might have to build a school on site. 
and provide those additional things. Now, that can come at a bit of a negotiation point because they might say, right, we'll build the school, but in order to build the school, we need a few more units, you know. So there's always that balancing act. So I would say certainly get in early, but focus on, on the planning matters in hand. Try and take the emotion out of it. It's really hard when you're when you're living on a beautiful piece of land, you know, and um, there's a risk of a big developer coming along. Yeah, it's, it's all really interesting stuff. And where I sort of go to is the bottom line is, like most things, we all want the same things at the end. We all want more housing for our children, their children, because, you know, it's an ever-growing population. We want it to be good housing. We don't want any to be left out. But, you know, you kind of mentioned, you know, like nimbyism, not in my backyard. And that will always play a part. And it's emotive. But if you can get to that stage where we actually make the the objective, the issue in hand, not what, what we want. It's like, okay, how do we deliver those? It's, 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 uh, it's really, really interesting to hear it from your perspective. Uh, as we draw to the close of, uh, our, sadly, our conversation, which has, has gone all too quickly, the, the one thing I think from a listener perspective, which we can't let you go without asking you and appreciate, we're talking about a big process and, and lots of sort of complications, but if there were anything that you could share with the listeners about, if they are thinking about planning and going into planning, what, what would you identify as at least one or two of the most important things for them to think about when, when putting something into planning that, that, that needs it? Okay, so I think if someone's looking at a site that they're looking to, whether it's a, a conversion or a new build, you know, I, I think it's really important to, we come to that, we come full circle, I think about talk about team, right? I think you have to remember, you know, you, I, we're, we're not planning officers. Um, I like to think I understand quite a bit of the planning process because of past experiences, but I'm still not a planning officer. I've just been very lucky to be in a different environment. So I do think it's really important to have either a, a planning consultant, especially if a slightly larger site, a planning consultant and a lead architect that have very good relationships with that local authority, have done schemes with that local authority. I don't think you should, and, and I've almost made the mistake before, where you bring in a planning consultant from a different area because you've got a good relationship with them, but they have no experience working with that local authority. I do think that's really important because if they've got those relationships, then when they are having conversations with the planning officers, they've, they've already got something to work with. They already understand what that particular planning officer likes, what they don't like, because I think every planning officer has their own sort of spin on what they'd like to see happen because they feel that they are changing the fabric of the environment that we live in, you know, so they will want to put their own spin on it. It's a bit like a tree preservation officer. A tree preservation officer wants to protect trees. So if I go to the site with loads of trees that are under a TPO order, then they're not going to like me. So I'm going to have to try and work with them to see what I can do to mitigate risk. So for me, I think those are some of the key factors. Um, it, it's really important to plan your numbers well and correctly you really need to understand that there are so many more numbers unlike doing a buy refurb sell flip style development there are so many more factors to consider breaking ground is going to be tough work because you don't know what you're dealing with underneath you know there might be archaeological finds in that side of it and that's after planning i guess but you need to really be clear about your numbers before you even go into get planning from that point of view but i do think architects plan consultants are crucial one big thing for me is don't be scared to go talk to the, the local council. So there'll be a parish or a town council in the area you're looking at. Don't be afraid to go have a conversation with them, even if it's with your architect. Get the conversations going early because all that will happen is there'll be whispers and rumours going around. 
he said, she said, oh, I think someone's going to try and develop this piece of land. Get in early, talk to them, get talking to the community, because I think that ticks two boxes. You understand their pain points. You understand what they need from a desirability point of view. It might be that if you are developing something a bit bigger, that they're all missing, I don't know, a little play park or an area for the kids to embrace and enjoy. I think what you said, Stuart, that, you know, having something for those future generations. So understand what they need and try and build that into your plan. I think that's crucial. Also, that takes a lot of weight and gives a lot of weight to your application with the planning authority because you can evidence base that you've gone to the authority, you've spoken to the community, you've tried to listen as best you can and where possible, you've tried to include things that will tick the boxes for them. There's a few thoughts that come to mind. Hope that helps. Well, for me personally, I'm scribbling these down because they are certainly very helpful. I think for anyone personally, the bit I love is is the bit you've talked about in terms of not being fearful to speak with mm. the local council. Because I, I think it's this inherent thing. I'm sure most of us do it where we fear what the response is going to be. Therefore, we don't go out and ask for that response. But actually, the sooner we get to it, the better. It's, it's, I call it a bit of a, a, an audit. So we get all of those things out on the table as quickly as we can so that we can overcome those obstacles. But of course, inherently, I'm like the, you know, the sheep at the top of the cliff. I'm pushing back. I'm resisting that because I'm like, oh, no, they're going to say they don't like it. They don't want it. But by, by doing that very thing is, is, again, like you said, we've come full circle. You're developing that relationship to have that conversation. Yeah. And, and you might absolutely, you might save a lot of money in the process. Because if you've developed some outline ideas and plans, and I always say, if you're doing some CGIs and drawings that you want to show a planning authority, go pastel. You know, don't do hard look, go pastel, keep it very sort of warm to start with, but very much just you know talk to them because they might say actually we don't like out of these five points you raised we like those three of those two we are absolutely no goes it's better to have a conversation early rather than submit the full application then wait eight 12 13 weeks to just get a refusal and then you've got a site that you've been refused on which then means when you go back for another application everyone will be looking back at the past one going well we refused this site before so why should we grant it now what's fundamentally changed you know and and that's that's tougher then then you're fighting a real upheaval yeah, on the journey. So yeah, I think totally agree with don't be scared to have the right conversations at least get started. Thank you very much for, for joining us today, Amanda. I really enjoyed the conversation. And there are so many more things I'd like to, to talk to you about and, and ask you about. Not least because one day I'd really like to, to buy a church and develop it, or, or at least a building as interesting as a church. So I, I think that'd be, be fantastic. But just quickly before we go, would you like people to get in touch with you? And, and if so, how, how could they do that? Yeah, of course. Um, and, and thank you so much. I mean, guys, it has been a real pleasure being on here. I, I would love to come back on again. I do like your, your style and uh, I think we'd have good fun doing more of these. But in terms of getting hold of me, more people can reach out to me. They can either reach out to me. We, we've got a, our group, Modus Investments, and we've got an accountancy firm over in Oxfordshire, Modus Accountants. So you can just Google those websites, find us and reach out via the website, via the form. You can probably find me on LinkedIn. Um, I'll be on there as well. So feel free to reach out direct to me um, or you can email me at imran at modus-academy.com and reach out to me that way as well. So yeah, feel free. If anyone's got any questions around property or going to the world of development, they're, they're more than happy to reach out. And just, just for the listener's benefit, it's modus, M-O-D-U-S. That's correct, yes. Fantastic. So once again, Imran, just want to say thank you very much for joining us today and providing us with significant amounts of value in regards to your property journey and the planning processes and for everyone else please do leave us a rating and review if you've got some value from this podcast which i'm absolutely convinced you will have done and for everything else head over to thebusinessofproperty.com where we'll have all of the show notes and key points that imran's made today until next wednesday